listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. To shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, welcome to the show. This is Aaron Fishman. This week bringing you a fun, in-depth show on the Philadelphia 76ers. After years of rebuilding and quote-unquote trusting the process, Brett Brown's team is finally poised to win some basketball games. Whether it's the sudden emergence of Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid's continual and rapid evolution, or more broadly, how the team has made such immense strides, we have it all for you. First, we'll share my comprehensive discussion with Max Rappaport, co-host of the Step Over podcast, a 76ers-themed show, and contributor to Complex Sports and Bleacher Report. Max also sells creatively stupid Sixers shirts at Step Over Tees. And don't forget to stay tuned after the break to hear the Superflight podcast's Joe Borelli rave about Ben Simmons' meteoric rise. But before we get started, we wouldn't want you to think we forgot Max's fun fact. As part of a bet with a college roommate, our guest once ate 273 Chipotle burritos in a calendar year. Max won the bet, with the prize consisting of nothing other than his pride and this amazing story. Curiously, after that year of eating so many burritos, most of which were veggie burritos with sour cream and guacamole, he somehow lost 10 pounds. Before we get really hungry, or full, or otherwise distracted from the excitement going on in Philly, I didn't say cheesesteaks, you were thinking that, let's just start the show. Hey Max, I just want to first apologize for any role that this podcast may have played in jinxing the 76ers the last couple games, these two home losses. Well, I feel like, so we lost a couple games since since we decided we were going to do this podcast, but they also traded Jalil Okafor, which I feel like is <laughs> probably like 10 wins equivalent. So we're like, like 10 that. and 2 since we made that decision. Okay, does the podcast get credit for that too? I guess if it's going to get... It's going to get blamed for the losses, then sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I was just going to add to that, since my Pistons interview with Duncan Smith, they've gone 0-3 and possibly now 0-4 if they lose to the Warriors. And one of those losses was to the 76ers. So Mm -hmm. um, anyway, we'll get on with it. There's so much to talk about. As of Friday, Philadelphia is just one win away from being halfway toward reaching its 28-win total from the entire 16-17 season as they've transformed from lovable losers, I guess you could say, to this winning team we're now seeing. What are the biggest changes now that you see within the organization? And also, I'm curious just about the fan base and how a lot of them are perceiving what's going on. Yeah, well, I'd say the the biggest change I've noticed with the team is that I mean, you just saw it kind of in the Okafor Stauskas trade. Those were two guys who basically didn't play at all this season or hadn't played at all until getting traded. You know, and then at the end of the bench, you still have guys like Furkan Korkmaz, um, even Justin Anderson was kind of in and out of the lineup. I feel like the biggest change is that like a year, or especially like two or three years ago, 
like Nick Stauskas was playing big minutes and was like a part of the future. And a guy like Justin Anderson probably would have been a starter. And Furkan Korkmaz would have been just thrown 25 minutes a game because he has potential. And now you're actually having to make roster decisions based on winning and losing games, which has not been the case. And the Okafor and Stauskas for, for Trevor Booker trade is, I guess, a good example of that. And the fact that they're playing Amir Johnson, you know, relevant minutes and Jared Bayless, like, I guess the the part that's been hardest for me to get back into as a fan is after like four years of not really caring about wins and losses of only thinking about developing individual players, I think was like a hard adjustment for me to make to see like Rashawn Holmes waste away on the bench in favor of Amir Johnson, even though Amir Johnson, maybe I don't even know if I believe this, but I think the team believes Amir Johnson is, you know, a more impactful player playing 20 minutes off the bench than Rashawn Holmes right now but I think that's been the the weirdest part of it for me as a fan is like getting out of the mindset of the only thing that matters is developing your young prospects and you know the future and actually having to think about the (laughs) present for once that's really interesting it's kind of like a role reversal I think to how a normal fan would think I would say a fan of probably 29 other franchises I mean with some exception but where, whereas they're more focused on the here and now and winning and less about the long view. Well, I think it's it's sort of the Sixers were in that mindset that bad to mediocre teams are in for the last month of the season, usually. Like yeah. that, that late March, early April mindset of like, okay, let's get, you know, whatever second round player you took two years ago. Let's let's start him a couple games at shooting guard and you know, let's let's kind of rest some of our veterans. Like the Sixers are just in that for like four straight seasons. Beginning, yeah, all season, every season. Yeah, yeah. that's a really the whole good point. off season. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of times the summer league team was basically the team that ended up playing, and in some <laughs> cases, fun. the summer league team was more talented because they had players who then got hurt, like Ben Simmons afterwards. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that that part of it's been really kind of bizarre, and I think. You know, you you asked how it's how the fan base has been handling it, and I think it's kind of interesting because I thought there was so much enthusiasm around the Sixers the last four seasons during the tank, and there's certainly I would say there's more enthusiasm now, but I think the like hardcore process fans are maybe maybe their enthusiasm level hasn't really changed or it's been shifted in a different way. They're they're no longer like cult followers of lovable losers. It's like they're now they care about wins and losses too. And it's like, that makes it in some ways more fun because the team's better and they, and beads playing and Simmons has been awesome. But at the same time, like it was kind of uh, a win win before it's like, if the Sixers won a game, it's like, Oh great. Like they got one of their 12 wins they're going to have this year. That's, you know, good for them. And probably one of their young players played well to get them there. And if they didn't, it was like, okay, great draft position. And now it's like half the time you're kind of pissed after a game. So I think that part of it, I see that. And then also I think there's been a lot of fans who kind of tuned it out the last few years who jumped back on board, who are kind of bringing like an NFL mindset to it where they're like after every game, they want Brett Brown fired and they're like (laughs) pissed off because JJ Reddick said two bad games in a row. And they're like, yes, bums overpaid. Like I just, I feel like that didn't exist for like four years because the only people paying attention in Philly were NBA first people and people who, we're on board mostly with the process. So I think now you're right. starting to see like a lot more, I don't know. I wouldn't even say like disagreement within the fan base, just like 
there are times they lose games and it sucks. And that really wasn't something you had to think about. It was like only fun when they were bad. Yeah, it sounds a little bit bittersweet, but like those are first world problems that the 76ers are having now. And I don't know if there was a feeling of kind of like, here we go again after the 76ers started 0-3 and 1-4, and but they had won 12 of their last 17 before those last two home losses to the Suns and Lakers. And other than those two, maybe the only other disappointing loss was at Sacramento. How is the team, and I know there's been a huge upgrade in talent and the key players are healthy, but how have they been able to be so reliable despite playing such a difficult strength of schedule to begin the year? And they're just so young too. Yeah, I've been pretty surprised, honestly. You know, I think before the season, a lot of people were, I think the Vegas projected them at like 43 and a half over under in terms of regular season wins, I, I think I said 37 was like, I'd be happy with 37 and then maybe sneaking into the playoffs. Like I, I just didn't see like low forties, mid forties as a, as a possibility. And at this point they're basically on pace for like 43, 44 wins with a really tough strength of schedule that they've had so far. And also being young and a lot of new pieces and it being the beginning of the season and the Sixers are a team you'd think would come together towards the end, especially with Fultz not playing. I'd say I attrib- the thing I attribute it to most is just that basically every player, I mean, I, I'd say with the exception of maybe like Amir Johnson and Jared Bayless, basically everyone on the team is better than you thought they were going to be. Like Embiid is better in the sense that he's playing 35 minutes a night at this point and only missing back-to-backs. And there are just fewer back-to-backs now because the M- NBA has changed their schedule. So like he has brought way more value, I think, than you could have expected. Like he's even a little bit better than he was last season in some ways. And he's playing more and more consistently. Ben Simmons, I think has been way better than anyone expected him to be like to the point where there's a legitimate debate about who's the you know better franchise piece moving forward and beater Simmons, which I didn't really expect to be a, co- a topic of conversation. Robert Covington's played really well, even like Rashawn Holmes and Justin Anderson before he got hurt. And TJ McConnell's gotten better. I think it's just like everything's kind of come together and every a lot of their young players have gotten just a little bit better. And then obviously Simmons and Embiid just being consistent, playing big minutes and being as good as they've been has allowed them to weather it. And I think it's says something too that Fultz hasn't even played yet. You know, because I think if you had told me before the season that he'd missed the basically the first two months of the season, I would have thought, you know, okay, now I'm gonna take that 37 and maybe make it 33. And, you know, I'm kind of curious to see what happens when he comes back because you take Bayless off the floor and put him on and you you would hope that's a, an improvement. It's really interesting to see how well they've done. I know they were a trendy pick to make the playoffs and I thought it was entirely possible, but also that people were getting a little too excited, maybe overlooking the importance of experience in the NBA. And I have been pretty wrong about that and it's exciting to see they went all in on Joel Embiid in the offseason he signed that massive deal contract extension for five years and 146.5 million dollars it's described as essentially guaranteed there are provisions that could protect the 76ers in, in an extreme situation but just basically how substantial of a risk are they taking? And to what extent do you think the 76ers ultimately are making the right decision? I, I think there's definitely risk involved, obviously. 
I thought that as a, as a fan, I probably would have preferred, and I don't know if this is on the table, but um, all things being equal, I would have preferred a deal that offered more guaranteed money and maybe opened up the provisions a little bit more. Basically, my understanding is the Sixers are protected from basically like a career ending foot or back injury. Like if he were to break his foot this season and basically not be able to play again, maybe on the hook for only about half of his extension money. Same thing if it's a back injury. If he were to rupture his Achilles or something or, you know, tear an ACL and have that be a a degenerative problem, they're not protected at all and are paying him the full amount. But honestly, I would have preferred like guarantee 75% of it, but allow there to be more, you know, any kind of career ending injury would um, protect them. I, I feel like it is it is pretty narrow, the protections. It's basically, and, and it's a situation where they'd have to release him in order to get the money back. So it's basically only in the case of a career-ending injury. That said, I mean, I don't know what else you do, right? Is, like, is you, you, you kind of just have talent. I think you kind of have to, even though there's... Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, I guess I just didn't see a scenario in which they risk letting him walk. Right. And I think it was one of those things like, you know, when you when you flip a coin to make a decision and it comes up heads or tails. And like in that moment, either you're like really excited that it was the thing like in, in before you flip the coin, you're like, oh, I could go with either of these. And then once you see it, you're either disappointed or you're excited. Yeah. It was like when I saw the Woj tweet come up that the Sixers had extended Embiid for a hundred and whatever million dollars. My reaction was like, oh, thank God. Like, thank God that he's not going to like sign a one year deal next year and then leave and go to Lakers or something like and that was even before like all the details came out. But I was just like so relieved to know that he was locked in. And I think that's how most people felt. Like there was a lot of hand wringing before the fact about like, you know, they better not give him like a full max or it better be largely unguaranteed or have a bunch of te- like a team option after two years, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but then I think once it went down, people were happy that it was there, that it was in place. You mentioned this earlier. He's playing bigger minutes now this season. Right now, his average on, over the course of the season is over 30 minutes per game, and it's been more recently. His rebounding rate is off the charts, scoring really well, efficiently. Just on the court, what are you seeing from him, essentially? I think the the biggest change that I've seen is that he's just playing a lot more in control. You know, which I think is one of the reasons he's been able to play 35 minutes a game and or now now a little over 30, but recently around 35 for me for the last three weeks or so. He just seems way more in control. Like last season, it felt like because he was only playing 24 minutes at first or 20 minutes and then it got ramped up. He was just trying to do so much when he was on the floor and he has a super high usage rate even now, but it doesn't feel as uh, felt really forced last year. And he was great and they didn't have Ben Simmons and they really needed to lean on him, but it felt like when he was on the floor, he was going to put up every shot and he was going to go for every block and dive out of bounds and, you know, basically put his body on the line. And I feel like this year has been a little bit more, um, he's a huge part of the offense and probably the piece in the offense other than Ben Simmons, but it feels more in the flow of things. And I feel like that's been the biggest difference is if it just feels more in control. And he's, I mean, just like little things too, like he's averaging over three assists a game. He's, recently hasn't been taking as many threes he's been like really trying to get to the rim and get fouled he just seems to be playing a more efficient style of play and he still turns the ball over which is probably like his biggest weakness right now but it just feels i don't know the whole thing just feels more in control and it feels like he's more a piece you can rely on 
in addition to all the minutes he's playing just because it's not up and down like it was before it's wild to me that he didn't even pick up a basketball until maybe seven or eight years ago something like that right yeah it's crazy he started playing basketball when he was i think it was like 15 (laughs) and he's 20 yeah he's and he's 23 now it's crazy I was listening to him on JJ Reddick's new podcast for The Ringer. Just a really fascinating story. <laughs> Such a humble guy, too, even though you might not think it sometimes looking at his Twitter page, but really does seem like a humble, great guy that it's hard not to root for. And Ben Simmons, just 21, he's the other transformational talent on this roster that a lot of people are excited about. I think of him as kind of like a redshirt rookie. He's burst onto the scene really fast. And I know Donovan Mitchell for the Jazz has been going off lately, and there are a number of solid rookies around the league. But he seems to be the easy front runner for Rookie of the Year, at least in my opinion. Uh, what kind of impact do you think sitting out his rookie year with injury has had on his obvious NBA readiness? Well, I thought it was interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember who wrote this. It was Lee Jenkins wrote a piece for SI maybe that came out last week about Simmons and talked about how when he went down for the year last year coming in, Brett Brown was looking at Simmons more as a point forward and like small slash power forward who was going to handle a little bit of the ball handling duties. And when he, you know, realized he was going to miss an entire season or would probably miss the season, he really started the transformation into turning him into a point guard. And I think that's that change and that mindset. I I was shocked when, you know, Brett Brown alluded to it throughout last season that, in the lead up to this season that he he would continue to call Ben Simmons a point guard and uh, talk about him as a backcourt player, talk about him defending point guards and whatever. And I think people were like, yeah, sure. Like he'll handle the ball a lot the way LeBron does or the way, you know, James Harden does, but he's not really the point guard, but he's come in and he is, when he's on the floor, he is the point guard. Like he's bringing the ball up the floor every time, even when he's on the floor with TJ McConnell, TJ, TJ will look for him, you know, to get him an outlet pass and let him bring the ball up. That part of it's been the most surprising that he is a traditional point guard from day one, and he's been really efficient in that way. And I would think just from reading that story and from what I know about Brett Brown, like that year of being able to kind of mold him in that way, it was really big. And maybe, I mean, I never want to say like sitting out a year is a, more of a benefit than playing for a year, but I think it might have that kind of side benefit of, you know, he comes into the league from day one as a point guard and, and had a year to, you know, kind of study that position and after after not really doing that in college i thought his college role would be what he did in the nba yeah maybe a silver lining is a better way to think of it because yeah i I agree with you totally that playing is the best in a perfect world he would be playing last year but i didn't see the updated numbers on this as of last wednesday ben simmons was leading the league in passes out of the paint to three-point shooters he also ranked fourth behind westbrook lebron james and harden in total passes to shooters. How is this guy at just 21 so effective inside the paint, either scoring himself with either hand or dishing out to these ready and capable shooters? The biggest thing that's been way better than I thought it would be is his ability to score inside and just his aggression and like how strong he is. I just, I thought a comparison that made sense to me when he was first coming to the league, a lot of people talked about like a 6'10 Rondo which sounded kind of right to me and also sounded awesome. I think some people were like, oh, yeah, all he has is a 6'10 Rondo. I'm like, that sounds great. That's like, that's an incredible player if he's that. Um, 
but I think he's more been more than that in the sense that he can score way more efficiently than I thought he could. And it's just more aggressive getting to the rim and pretty successful doing it. I think that's really opened up his ability to pass out of the paint. I didn't know that number. Um, you said from last week, but that doesn't surprise me that much because I, I think he's able to drive and kick and even post up a little bit and then pass out of that. Like, I think just his size and, you know, ability to score around the rim has been, you know, it, it makes sense why he's being able to do that. Yeah, he's so strong and so fast for someone that is yeah. just a rookie in the NBA. Like a grown man's body already and has the skills to match that. So, so we know the 76ers have been tanking for a while and, and they finished last in offensive efficiency each and every one of the previous four seasons. They're now ranking 18th, so still not great, but they got out of the bottom third and they're just not utterly incompetent in that area like years past. Besides Embiid and Simmons being fully healthy, every guy getting a little bit better, what do you think is the biggest key to that offensive improvement? I mean, I think a big part of it, even though Redick hasn't been shooting as well as you thought he would, and even Bayless has been kind of up and down, I think just having more shooters on the floor is, is a big part of it. Because I think that's what Brett Brown... The two big things he's always he's talked about basically since 2013 when they hired him was pace and space and pace they've always done they've always been one of the you know teams in the league with a higher offensive pace and really trying to push in transition and like utilize the athletes they had but they just didn't have shooters like they had Robert Covington was struggling as a shooter the last few years the times they had guys like Jakar Sampson starting you had Ish Smith was your point guard. Henry Sims was playing big minutes like you just had guys who didn't have that ability and I think you you put Joel Embiid in there you have Robert coming in shooting over 40 percent you add JJ Redick who even if he's not hitting he creates space just with his like with his gravity and then you thought you'd have Fultz but you have Bayless you have even Justin Anderson was hitting better before uh, he got hurt TLC has been shooting way better than he did in the past I, I think that's been the biggest thing is that Brett Brown's offense is sort of predicated on the extra pass and having shooters in the perimeter. I think the other thing is that Embiid just creates so much space and so many open looks for other players just because teams have to double him. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, he, as he's become a better and more willing passer, I think that's really helped too. You pair that improvement on offense with now that they, they've snuck into the top 10 in defensive efficiency I know their roster has a lot of length and that's been a priority in bringing in talent that has that. But is that mostly it, the length that is producing such good um, results so far? I would say it's that. And I think a huge part of it, just when you look at the on-off splits, it's like having Embiid on the floor for most of the game is and, and most games is such a huge difference from the last few seasons. He alone makes such a huge difference impact defensively and then you have Robert Covington who's improved as a defender um Ben Simmons who I wouldn't call him necessarily a plus defender but it like at least is able to you know create turnovers you have TJ McConnell playing a lot of minutes at point guard who you know is a good defender I think but I think the biggest thing is just that you have Embiid locked in there at 30 minutes a game basically mm-hmm. every game with the exception of I think three games this season he hasn't played and then you have Covington. You have two very good defenders, but I think Embiid just changes everything. And then around him, you do have some role players who are, who are fairly decent in Luawu. And uh, I keep going back to Justin Anderson before he got hurt, but I thought he was actually really good this season um, up until his injury. 
But yeah, I think I think Embiid's the biggest difference for sure. And adding JJ Redick, I think, has been huge. You talked about that perimeter shooting earlier. So he signed that one-year, twenty-three million dollar contract. He's playing the biggest minutes of his twelve-year career and providing something of a leadership role for this very young team. Tell me just a little bit about that role on and off the court. It seems like that's, um, you know, for the Sixers has been really nice to, to not, and not just Redick too, but like Amir Johnson and Bayless. And I feel like having veterans on the team has been, it's been really helpful for guys like Embiid and Simmons and Robert Covington. It just feels like they're not being leaned on quite as much. Um, as they were in past years, especially last year with Embiid, where in the games he played, he was basically their number one, two, and three offensive option. I think from a on the court standpoint, though, just I mean, Reddick's definitely struggled. He's been up and down this year and, and streaky, but I think teams respect him and game plan for him. And I think his just his movement off the ball, I, I just see a lot opening up when you watch games. There are a lot of times where like Ben Simmons is able to drive the lane and doesn't get a collapsing defender because you have Redick in the corner keeping his man to him because nobody wants to leave J.J. Redick. I think just having a guy with that reputation has been really big. And I, the hope is that it turns around. And I think he's shooting like, I don't have the number in front of me, but I think like 39%, which yeah, I think it's, is it's great. For, yeah, it, which is great. But I mean, he, he shot like 45, 44% most seasons. Yeah, it's just slightly below expectations for him, which are incredibly lofty as one of the best shooters in the entire league. Just a quick fun fact about him. Every season in the NBA, so his first 11, he's been on a playoff team. And that podcast I plugged earlier, he said on there that he's confident that this season will make it 12 for 12. <laughs> so I'm sure the 76ers are hoping to continue that trend with him. I just quickly wanted to ask you about Robert Covington because he also got that huge deal early on this season. Mm-hmm. How critical is he in just um, what they've built here in Philadelphia? I mean, I think he's been huge. I want to say, I'm gonna, I'm trying to pull it up right now. I want to say that as of like a few days ago, he was number one on the team in win shares. Wow. Other than Embiid, he's their best defender. He's taking almost eight threes a game and hitting 42% of them. He's just become a a really nice, well-rounded player. He's basically career highs in every category this year. I think he's a huge part of it. Like if you had to point to, like when I said earlier, that I think just everyone improving has been the biggest difference. I think Covington's gone from like a a good role player to like a very good starter for the Sixers. And I think, and I, I say role player, I think he was a good starter before and now he's a great starter for the Sixers. Yeah, actually it's a three-way, three-way tie right now. Every They're all at the same number, Ben Simmons, Covington, and Embiid, all the same number of win shares right now. Wow, that's a really interesting stat. I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that about Covington, especially people on the outside looking in, trying to understand why this team is so good. And I think it should be noted, too, that he's an undrafted forward from Tennessee State. So as the 76ers have accumulated all of these lottery picks, he's not one of them. He was a a hidden gem that they found and picked up. And as we're winding down, I just have a couple more questions for you just really quickly. Yeah. Brett Brown, I like how patient various decision makers have been with him over the years he obviously didn't have the personnel to compete until now his winning percentage though these four plus years with the 76ers is 250 
or I guess normal non-sports fans would say it's 25%. Yeah. So one win for every three losses. But they've been patient with him. Are there any noticeable changes you've seen in his approach now that they're finally have a respectable win-loss record? Or is it the same with him, just a, a man of the process? Well, I, I yeah, I'd say the, the two biggest differences that you notice, you know, as someone who's watched a lot of Sixers games the last few years and continues to watch a lot of Sixers games, like the biggest difference I've noticed is that he just seems to trust the players a lot more. Like Brett Brown for a long time was someone who I thought was maybe like the most timeout happy coach in the league. Like if things were going poorly or if there's a missed defensive assignment or if a team was going on a run or he saw something he didn't like coming, even coming out of a timeout, the other team like quickly scores on an inbound, he would call a second timeout. Um, and I just see a lot less of that, a lot more like letting guys play through bad stretches, letting the players figure it out a little bit more, um, which makes sense because I think he has players he can lean on and especially Redick and Amir Johnson and Bayless and guys who have been in the league and even TJ McConnell and Covington and like those guys who were rookies or were second year players a few years ago are now veterans. Uh, I think he's, he's able to lean on his players a lot more is one part of it. Um, and then I'm not like a big X's and O's guy, but I mean, just from my like uninformed eye, I, I do see them running um, what seemed to be more complicated sets and just doing more interesting things. And people who know a lot more than I do about X's and O's kind of back that up that I think Brett Brown used to say that with the talent level he had and with the the experience level he had on the roster, basically their offense had to be vanilla all the time. Like, And at some point he would experiment with new flavors, but vanilla was what it needed to be because that was what his players could, <laughs> could execute. Um, so I think that's, that's definitely been part of it too, is like you add Redick, you add Ben Simmons, even um, Covington's really improved. And now you can do some more interesting things. And I, I think some of the stuff they've been doing with some of the just like pick and roll with Ben Simmons and Embiid and freeing up shooters on the weak side, like stuff like that, that just things seem to to click for them and they just seem to get open looks that they used to not get. And some of that I think is talent level, but also it's just execution, it seems like. And finally, just delving more into Markel Fultz, he's been limited to just four games with the shoulder injury and those were subpar. I think we'd all admit he couldn't even shoot a free throw. That was tough to watch. Uh, Tom Moore just reported Thursday that his soreness and muscle imbalance is gone, but there's still no timetable set for his return. You mentioned Bayless getting less time, I think, but um, I'm curious also to what extent his return could affect TJ McConnell's minutes as a backup guard and what you think reasonable expectations are. This is the guy who's the number one overall pick. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people are forgetting about him on the team with the success of the team overall. I mean, it's, it's nice for him that he's gotten a benefit that Simmons and Embiid and even Okafor, when he had his injury issues and Noel before that didn't get the benefit of, which is like, he's basically flying under the radar as a number one overall pick. who's not playing at all. And, and not only not playing, but not playing with like some mystery ailment that nobody can seem to explain properly. Um, You would think this would be a huge story, but it, it really, it's like, you almost forget he exists sometimes, which is, Good for him, you know, with where he's at right now. And, yeah. and you know, you'd rather that than him be bombarded. The Sixers be bombarded with questions about it all the time. Although I'd like to know more about exactly what's happening. To your McConnell question, 
I'd be pretty shocked if it affects his minutes just because he's been he's been really big for them this year. Um and I thought I thought he'd be a guy whose minutes would really suffer coming into this season, less so because of Fulton, more so because Ben Simmons overlaps with him so much. But I think he's really established himself as the guy who's on the floor when Ben Simmons is off. And Simmons plays 36 minutes a game. But for those 12 minutes where he's off the floor, it's almost always TJ McConnell um, when he's been healthy. He missed a few games uh, recently with a shoulder issue, but he's back now. So he's pretty much guaranteed those 12 minutes. He plays 24 minutes a game. I think he's guaranteed those 12. And then they've even been using him and Simmons together a little bit. I mean, Bayless is playing 28 minutes a game and just isn't that good. <laughs> like he's probably the most frustrating player on the team to watch right now. He's really up and down as a shooter and not consistent. It's really the only thing he brings to the table right now. Um, he's not a good defender. I think TJ McConnell is a really good defender. He does everything well, except being able to stretch the floor. And I think, you know, Fultz overlaps a lot more with Bayless in terms of what Bayless brings to the table than Fultz overlapping with McConnell. And I think the Sixers have already shown that the Simmons-McConnell overlap, which I thought would be a reason McConnell wouldn't play, isn't enough to keep him off the floor. So I feel like Fultz coming back should should affect Bayless more than McConnell Okay, um, just for that reason. Also, because I, I just think Fultz is better. I think TJ... McConnell is better than Bayless and more impactful. And I think Fultz is better than Bayless also. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up for me. I just have to say, I really enjoyed talking with you. It's obvious, you know, this team inside and out. I guess just the last thing, I want to give you an opportunity to to briefly reflect on the trade. I know you expressed (laughs) excitement or relief that Okafor, that situation's finally been resolved. But did you want to just add anything real quick right here? Yeah, you know, it was kind of anticlimactic after all this time. And I think it's been like two years plus of expecting an Okafor trade. Now, honestly, it's been like three and a half years because like basically from the time he was drafted, like most people when he most Sixers fans, I thought when the Lakers pick came in and it was D'Angelo Russell, who everyone in Philly wanted. I think there was a little bit of thought of like, okay, do they take Porzingis? Do they take Moutier? Do they, you know, trade down, whatever. And when they took Okafor, most people at that moment were like, okay, they're going to flip him like in two picks. Well, we're waiting for another tweet. That didn't come. And they're like, okay, well, they're going to trade him like during the season or they'll like try to pump up his value with him beat out and then do something with it. But when that didn't happen, like it's basically been like every trade deadline, every summer, every draft, there's been an expectation that he'd be dealt. And, you know, it was a little anticlimactic that it was him, Stauskas, and a second round pick for Trevor Booker was like, not. I think people had kind of given up on having any hope for getting real value out of it. But I think you were thinking like, okay, you look for, for a second round pick or something or a late first or a young, another young player like Hazonia or something. I think it was a little disappointing that it was just for like a one year stopgap veteran who's not that exciting. But I think it's just it was just a relief to not have to talk about Okafor anymore and not have this trade deadline be another like what's going to happen with Okafor. It's a little frustrating, too, that like as someone who's followed the team really closely and had to watch a lot of Jalil Okafor and had to deal with like just him not really giving a <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I can curse on this podcast. Not really caring, not really putting in much effort. Like I, I was someone who I thought more than most Sixers fans defended Okafor and thought like, OK, look, he could. He's had it rough. He's like not really wasn't happy to be here in the first place. Like maybe he can turn it around. He's vegan now. He's lost some weight. Along the way, I feel like I made a lot of excuses for Okafor. 
but I think it was really frustrating as a fan this season when like the team stopped playing him that there was a lot of like the Sixers have done Okafor wrong and like they should waive him because this is unfair to him. It's like, I don't know. I was pretty torn about that. Like I just thought there was a lot of, a lot of pity for Okafor as if he had nothing to do with the situation and as if he'd been drafted and then just like sat on the bench for no reason. Like, you know, as opposed to drafted third overall and then like, basically from day one, like made it clear he didn't want to be in Philly and like his effort level matched that. I feel like Sixers fans definitely have a not that great feeling about Okafor, but it was like frustrating to then have people in another city be like, yeah, like Philly's really screwing Okafor, which it was like similar to what happened with Evan Turner when he was here, drafted second overall and like they weren't playing him at point guard and people around the league were like, they're ruining his career. He needs to be playing point guard. It was like, if you watched Evan Turner every night, you would not think he needs to play point guard here. <laughs> I'm just happy to not have to deal with that anymore and not have to have like my non-Sixers fans friends be like, what's going on with Okafor? Why aren't they playing him more? <laughs> I guess I see it kind of from the outside as like a win-win for Okafor and the team, even if they didn't get much for him, just to be done with the situation and give him a shot at a new beginning in Brooklyn. And yeah, we'll see what happens, but I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk Sixers with us and, and just um yeah thanks again enjoy the rest of your weekend yeah no problem you too after a quick break Joe Borelli of the Super Flight Podcast joins me briefly to talk more about Ben this is Andrew Schleck from Down to Dunk and Daily Thunder and you're listening to On the NBA Beat hey Joe what's going on Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to do it. It's going to be a quick one. First, though, just more broadly about the team. I know you're a huge 76ers fan. How is it feeling right now after all of those years of patiently trusting the process, waiting for the wins to come, and now they're finally a winning NBA team? Uh, you know, I feel a couple different ways about it, to be honest with you. I mean, it's great to watch your team win. This is what everyone in like Sixersville has been waiting for. We're all super eager to have a winning team and, you know, stuck through the the losing for a number of years just to get, get a chance to have a chance at a, a team like this, or like what this team could potentially be. So in that respect, like I'm loving it. I, I love watching the team be competitive. I love watching them win games. You know, there's nothing more fun than watching your team win. But at the same time, I feel a, I should be a little bit cautious because they're so young and they're winning at such a, a crazy clip, like immediately. This is the first year of Ben Simmons, and I mean, you know, he was in the year, he was in the season last year, but he was injured. So this is his rookie season, essentially. And to come out like this, the way they're winning right now, I think they're twelve and eight or something. I forget the record. My God, I should know that. Twelve and nine 12 as a recording nine. time. Okay. Yeah, and you know, it's incredible, especially since if you consider they started out the season with the toughest schedule in the league. They went. They started zero and three. They were on the road, and they they played. Yeah. They played the Wizards. They played the Cavs, and they played somebody else, and I can't remember. But and they well, won. they played also the Celtics twice Celtics, and the Warriors Celtics, twice. Exactly, and the yeah. Warriors twice. So yeah, was, yeah, and one and four. Also, they started off zero and three and one and four. Right. So they've won twelve of their last seventeen, which is crazy for a team that's this young. It feels it feels amazing. I think everybody that was like a truster of the process or a fan of Sam Hinkies or saying that like, listen, you know, it really is about having the longest view in the room. It really is about maximizing your 
chances to get these guys. It really is about being patient and not knee-jerk reactions. And like, it's okay if you don't have a point card to start the season. It's okay that you're giving guys short-term contracts to see if they pan out like Tony Roden or um, Robert Covington, who turned out to be a really good player and just signed a huge contract. It's it's a phenomenal feeling. And, uh, you know, there were, believe it or not, there is a certain section of Sixers fans, probably mostly the guys that listen to rights to Ricky Sanchez, like myself. But there's a certain section of Sixers fans who actually enjoyed watching the team be bad for the last few years. Not necessarily that you like watching losing, but there were things to root for in there. Like Sam Hinkie did such a phenomenal job of getting draft picks and having the, the lottery matter by trading away guys and getting like the Kings pick, which could have traded or could have, you know, which actually swapped this year and the Lakers pick and like all these things, there was always something to look forward to. Yeah. It was usually at the end of the season, like we're looking forward to the draft, but still there was, there was a group of people that was like, are they winning too much? Are they winning not enough? And like, is it going wrong? Like to get here, but is, is amazing, but have them winning so much so soon. Uh, it's a little bit disconcerting. I'm a little bit, I'm trying to approach this cautiously, you know? Yeah. I think I know what you're saying too. There's almost a sense of beauty in the ugliness or in yeah. the process, just enduring, going through it all. And it has to be kind of a foreign feeling right now. But I think also no one, or at least I'm not saying that they're an elite team or that I have lofty expectations for what they'll do in the playoffs this season, or even necessarily that they'll make the playoffs, even though I really think they will, barring some type of bad injury or something. I shouldn't say that. (laughs) I'm sorry. But they're finally winning, even if it's not at an elite level. It's good to see them enjoy the fruits of their labor. But about Ben Simmons, the former number one overall pick, one season at LSU. He is just so good, so NBA ready. And I wonder how much sitting out that injury year played a role in that. Also, he's just a physical specimen right now. How good is he? What have you seen from him? Anything surprising that you didn't expect? Well, you know, that's weird because like I expected him to be good. I really did. I expected him to come out and I expected him to have like this amazing court vision because we know that that translates. That's why I have confidence in Lonzo Ball eventually figuring it out and being good. He just needs to figure out a jump shot. Ben Simmons has the same thing. The difference between them is that A, Ben Simmons is way bigger and B, he's way more explosive. He can get to the rim at will. And that's what surprises me. Guys bounce off of him when they're trying to stop him. And he also has this second level of speed that I did not expect because I don't really watch college ball. But we knew he was a, you know, really dynamic player. But when you see him play and he, he just kicks in that second gear and goes to the rim and gets around his guy, it's kind of amazing to watch. Right now, he doesn't have a jump shot nearly at all. And it, it's pretty wonky when he does shoot. Most people think that he's shooting with the wrong hand. But I'm really surprised that it's translating. Like so far, he hasn't really needed a jump shot. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's so good at finding other guys on the court. A lot of it has to do with that he has, you know, shooters like Robert Cummington and JJ Redick and Embiid out there with him. So obviously they're going to stretch the floor. They're going to open up lanes for him by just being, you know, their presence on the court. But it, that he's able to take advantage of it at this young age, at this, you know, his first year playing, the way he's doing this, I, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's, it shows a maturity as a player that I just didn't expect. 
And to answer your other question, like, I do think that he benefited from being in the league for a year, but not actually playing. He even said in the offseason that he got better from last year. And people asked him, well, what do you mean? What, did, what got better? He's like, everything. He got to sit and witness the game. He got to watch really good players play. And, and don't forget, LeBron James is sort of his mentor. So the fact that he's that big, that fast, has that kind of court vision, yeah, it's it's an amazing package. And uh, I'm, I mean, I think everyone is blown away from by him right now. He's clearly leading the league in uh, the rookie of the year. Yeah, but, it's exciting to see. When I was um, hinting at the impact that sitting out last season has made on his game and NBA readiness, one thing I was really thinking about was the court vision. Mm-hmm. Because when you're on the sidelines and you're watching the team operate and the opponent and also just watching all of that game film, you have to learn. If you're doing your homework and studying something he didn't really do, admittedly so, at LSU, I think that's so important to growing your game. And he operates so well out of the paint. You talked about the jump shot that's really lacking right now, and he really hasn't needed it. He's scoring so effectively with both hands inside the paint. And then also just penetrating and dishing out for assists how lethal is his repertoire of skills right now even without the jump shot oh it's it's amazing it's really lethal i mean again like just to go back to what i said previously it's like his speed is uh it's it lulls you to sleep sort of like you see him coming and then he just he just goes into another gear and just kind of blows by his guy and and he's so big and strong that like people can't really guard him down in the paint Let's also not forget, he's really good at rebounding the ball, which is, you know, another skill of his, his that was highly touted coming out of college, remember, but he's just the total package. It's like, I think about Ben Simmons, honestly, the way I used to think about LeBron years ago. Like, the guy is just so big, and he's so strong. He's just an anomaly. He's just, you know, a physical freak. And I hate to say freak, because it sounds like a negative connotation, right? But by that, I just mean that, like, you know, he's bigger than most people. He just really is. And it's, it's not that like, and I say this all the time too, usually when you see guys in the NBA, if you meet them in person, they're just really tall. They're really tall and really thin. Um, and, you know, they obviously work out. They have muscle mass and stuff. But but most of them, they look like an elongated human being. Ben Simmons looks proportionately correct at that size, which is frightening. He's a fully formed, completely realized human being that's six foot 10, six foot 11. That's scary. And and to play against a guy like that who has that kind of speed and that kind of court vision and can rebound the ball like that and just get to the rim at will, I mean, that's just an amazing, an amazing package of a player. I'm gushing a little bit. Sorry. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Finally, he's on the court and he's just dominating. It's really exciting to see. I got to see him in Los Angeles against the Clippers, that close win at the end of the game. And... He was great to see, just so athletic, amazing in transition too. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's really fun to watch. He's only 21 and he's definitely going to keep getting better. I think he's the future best player in the NBA. I don't know how long it'll take. How many years do you think? Uh, I guess it maybe depends on LeBron James. Yeah. Just how long it takes him to, to trail off. It also depends on his teammate, Joel Embiid. Let's not forget about Embiid. I still think that of the two of them, like, Ben Simmons is going to be phenomenal. He's going to be a great player. Embiid has the talent to be the best player of all time. Maybe. But definitely a Hall of Famer. Embiid's already a year ahead of him. If he can stay healthy, man, you're talking about two of the 
best players in the league on the same team. <laughs> that is crazy. Health will be really important, but those two guys, Giannis Antetokounmpo, mm-hmm. I mean, even Kristaps Porzingis is really young and has so many tools, seven-footer who, who could just shoot the lights out. The league is in good hands, I think, is a good way to end it. Oh, yeah. Totally. It's in great shape. Having these young guys come in. And the funny thing is, like, they're all giants, too, right? They're all, they're all like, really. Yeah. There's no point guards we're speaking of, except for Ben Simmons, who is a 6'10 point guard. It's, it's insane. So it's the league's in really good hands. And I know there was a long time where everyone talked about the center position is dead. Well, I mean, maybe it's dead, but maybe it's just morphed into something like this. And this is, this is incredible. We've got a bunch of centers that actually play like small forwards. I love it. Yeah. The game has changed definitely a lot. And, um, it's always fun talking with you. Thanks for joining me, Joe. Yeah, of course. Aaron. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure.